Welcome to QD Clinic, brought to you by RoomNow.Live. RoomNow.Live, the little big meeting. Little in that we're expecting a crowd that will be small enough to be intimate. Big in that we're going to broadcast it over the internet so that everybody can watch it, even if you don't attend. Check it out, RoomNow.Live. Today's case is called Recurrent Infections in a Patient on a Biologic. This is a 66-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis for a number of years. She's got a lot of comorbidities, recurrent UTI, renal insufficiency, creatinine about 1.5. She has myofascial pain, OA of the hands and low back, osteoporosis of vertebral compression fracture. She's been treated with a number of different DMARDs and biologics, including methotrexate, Embrel, Humira, Simsia. Last visit in October, she was uh, started on Arencia, and like so many of the biologics before that, it was never started or it was delayed, or she's largely not been on the drug because she's had recurrent infections. Now, she has, um, in her history, recurrent UTIs, which I think have resulted in hospitalization, and hence she may or may not have pyelonephritis associated with that. Sick and been in the hospital with pneumonias in the past as well. The problem is every time she gets sick, everybody stops her biologics and um, and her arthritis goes to hell in a handbasket. And then I'm left to clean up the mess. The question is, what do you do? Well, the problem here is a misunderstanding on one, who's prescribing and managing rheumatoid arthritis therapy, specifically the biologic. That would be me. And number two, who has the power to stop the drug? And that would be, again, me and only me. So here's some rules on how to manage patients with recurrent infections and who go, go off of therapy and then get worse because of it. Rule number one, um, I own the drug. I'm letting the patient borrow it. If I let you borrow my Mustang, you wouldn't gas it or not gas it, paint it or not paint it. It's my Mustang. You drive it like I tell you to drive it. And that's the way it's supposed to work. Here, I'm letting you use my medicine and I'm in charge of it. Nobody knows more about the biologic or rheumatoid arthritis therapies than I do. So again, that has to be instilled upon the patient. Other people who mean well are voicing their opinions, the patient's stopping medicines, that's a bad idea. Nurses, pharmacists, psychiatrists, next door neighbors, the hospitalists, they don't get a vote. Why? Because they get their education from the television and TV ads. I know about the biologic. So number one, I own it, only I can stop it. And the only other rule is if you're in the hospital and on IV antibiotics, you can stop the drug. Rule number two is you never stop a biologic. If you get a cold, a sniffle, a URI, a flu, unless you got a temperature of greater than 102, I don't care. It doesn't matter. URIs never progress to pneumonia and death, okay? And stopping the uh, biologic, holding the biologic, makes everyone think that the biologic causes the infection when clearly it doesn't. The evidence is very clear. Biologics rarely, rarely augment infection risk. And that's actually proven by this case. This woman has um, been on therapy and not been on therapy, and yet she continues to have recurrent UTIs. So if she's on a biologic, she has UTIs. If she's off the biologic, she has UTIs. Everybody thinks it's a biologic. It's not the biologic, it's her rheumatoid arthritis and her plumbing and her mechanical issues regarding her, urine, her genitourinary tract, which she's having addressed by urologists and surgeons, et cetera. 
So again, only when the patient has multiple comorbidities, is on high dose steroids, has lots of stuff going wrong, does the addition of a biologic significantly augment the risk. And you know what? It augments the annual risk of an SIE, serious infectious event, from 30% to 40%. The patient's already in a bad way. So again, never stop the biologic. Um, understand the true risks of infection associated with the biologic. Um, and then when you have to prescribe something, what's the safest regimen you can use as far as rheumatic therapy? Well, assuming DMARDs, and then above DMARDs, I would say the lowest dose of a TNF inhibitor. That especially is adjustable with, with Remicade or another infusible, possibly, but um, it's also with, with uh, Etanercept. You can lower the dose, and once you get someone established and doing well, you can change it to 25 once a week or 50 every two or three weeks. Lowering the dose probably is um, a way of reducing risk, although it's a marginal reduction in risk. The next way is actually probably to use abatacept. Abatacept, when it comes to infection numbers, looks like it's better than all the other biologics, including TNF inhibitors. Not in all studies, but in a lot of studies, enough that it would be my go-to drug. And then if you're really strapped in all biologics, all drugs cause this, then I would use a conventional DMARD. In this woman, she hasn't been on hydroxychloroquine in a long time, started on her on hydroxychloroquine, guess what? She's gonna have the same number of UTIs on hydroxychloroquine as opposed to when she was on Simsia as opposed to when she was on nothing. But at least hydroxychloroquine um, is going to be a safer drug that, she, that she's told not to stop and that they won't stop in the emergency room. So again, those really hard and fast rules are very important in, in managing the patient. Of course, in this patient, she's going for a GU evaluation as to why she has recurrent infections uh, that's another lecture, um, actually another blog called The Difficult RA Patient. Look that up. Tune in for more QD videos. Take care. This is QD Clinic brought to you by Room Now Live, a great meeting in Fort Worth. Check out the faculty list. It's on the website, roomnow.live. And this is the last week of discounted registration. So you have until the uh, end of the week to save a lot of money and come to Fort Worth and enjoy the meeting. Um, my case I'm going to discuss today is called the TOFI guy. This is a 68-year-old gentleman who comes to me uh, with an acute uh, attack of gout that had been going on for almost two weeks. This was in 2017. Uh, when I saw him, I was impressed by um, his TOFI, which, to say the least, were voluminous gobs and gobs of lumps and bumps over the back of his hand, on his Achilles tendon, on his elbows, on his knees. The tophi were grapefruit size. On his elbows, they were uh, easily uh, uh, pool table, pool ball size, if you will. Um, they were just gigantic. And he'd had a long history of gout, not treated for many years, um, and tried to treat it in the last few years. The problem is, He's got all the comorbidities. He's got really bad hypertension, AFib, multiple hospitalizations for CHF. Uh, he's had a defibrillator. Uh, he's had a bypass. He not only has had hyperuricemia, he has COPD, um, sleep apnea, and a number of other things that are, are probably not germane to the discussion today. Um, so we treated the acute gout attack. Um, at the time, he was already on 300 of allopurinol. I raised him to 450 at the same time I gave him some steroids and, uh, and he came back in a few weeks, he was better. Interestingly, his labs showed he had a creatinine of about two and a half. He had a uric acid that was around three. 
um, it was actually really low. His CRP was very high. His SED rate was also very high. Uh, yet he clearly had gout. We did an ultrasound that showed a double contour so sign with stippling um, uh, and beaded urate deposits being seen. Synovial fluid aspiration was chock full of MSU crystals. The, the aspirate was milky, clumpy, kind of unlike anything you'd ever seen before. So the question was how to treat him. We talked for a long time about aggressive urate lowering therapy, maybe combination therapy. We talked to him about the use of peglodicase, which may be the drug that was designed for him. Ultimately, he went on peglodicase. He was on peglodicase for about eight weeks, took eight milligrams as an IV infusion, a two hour infusion uh, every two weeks. Uh, during which time he would um, do well and then flare and then have to go on prednisone for the really bad flares. And, and just when he was coming down off the prednisone and managing the flares, he would have to go back for another infusion. It was a little bit like the story you have with chemotherapy patients in that they, um, um, they're okay when they go in for therapy, but then therapy induces um, a storm of activity that um, is uh, hard to tolerate. And in his case, he had more and more attacks that could only be uh, managed with steroids. Uh, so over time, the issue with him was, how, Doc, how long do I need to take this? And what became apparent was that with each month, his urate deposits got sizably, noticeably smaller. His wife noticed, he noticed, he had greater mobility. Uh, so on one hand, he was delighted. On the other hand, he was dismayed with how long this therapy was going on. It was uh, at, at six months, I told him I needed six months more. At nine months, I told him I needed six months more. And then, you know, at some point when we made a gigantic reduction, like a 90% reduction in his urate, um, the visible urate um, deposits, then we could consider going on oral urate lowering therapy. Well, he only took therapy for an eight months. And, and then he was lost to follow-up. And then he died seven months later. And such is the case of people with really, really bad gout. Uh, patients who I have considered for um, severe urate-lowering therapy and peglodicase therapy and being very aggressive often don't want to take the therapy. And when they don't, their outcomes are horrible. Kidney outcomes are bad, heart outcomes are bad. Sometimes they die. Um, and, and that just shows you how complex this total body urate deposition disorder really is. So it takes um, a long, a short-term plan, a long-term plan. It takes a lot of coaching to get someone through who has tophus, uh, tophi uh, and needs them to be reduced because uric acid is a bad marker. Um, it's a bad biomarker. Uh, and it's a, uh, uh, it, you know, the uric, of course, when you give them a drug like peglodicase, their uric acid levels just go down to zero. They become undetectable. In his case, we put him on a background of azathioprine to suppress an immune response to the peg, the peglodicase, the pegylated part of peglodicase, which is often immunogenic. And when they develop an anti-drug antibody, makes the drug ineffective and their uric acid levels shoot up, suggesting one, inefficacy, and two, um, uh, toxicity. So we suppressed that with um, 100 milligrams azathioprine and it did very, very well um, with the exception of his long-term outcome and his, in, his uh, intermittent flares.
based on uh, uric acid lowering or, or the depletion of his uric acid um, deposits. So a difficult case. Um, what I learned from this, I think, is that, again, it takes a short-term and a long-term plan. What do you think? More QD videos tomorrow. Welcome to QD Video, brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where every seat is a good seat. Where all the rheumatologists are above average. It's sort of like the Lake Wobegon meeting for rheumatologists. Today's case is PSA versus EOA. 59-year-old female with psoriasis since 2006, taken care of and diagnosed by a major league psoriatic maven in, in Dallas, um, has been largely managed with methotrexate, weekly methotrexate, for a number of years with a good skin response, but a lot of joint pain, some back pain, a lot of pain and problems in her hands. She'd been treated with uh, secukinumab in the past with a great response to her skin, not to her joints. She never took a TNF inhibitor cyclosporin. She had a past history of back pain. She had a DIP arthrodesis a few years ago. Um, and she really has had no response to her joints for uh, the therapy she received. That included methotrexate, NSAIDs, Tylenol, and secukinumab. Uh, at one point, she took prednisone, but she doesn't remember how that responded. When you look at her x-ray, she has a pin in her DIP3. She has some reactive uh, central bony erosions. And in the DIP3, she has a sclerotic scooped out erosion medially. So is this PSA or is this EOA, inf erosive inflammatory osteoarthritis? Clearly the treatments would be different. Um, PSA would respond really well to um, many of the therapies we would use. And, and maybe methotrexate, recent data with the, the uh, PSA seam study, look for that. Um, suggest methotrexate would work. Uh, you know, we know that IL-17 inhibitors do work in PSA. We do also know that um, TNF inhibitors work very well. So there are a lot of things that would work really well. However, all those drugs would really have no effect, have been proven to have no effect in patients with inf uh, inflammatory osteoarthritis. So the distinguishing features here could be the distribution. Um, joints, DIPs, and PIPs are present for both. Um, other joints might help to sway uh, your decision. So in erosive OA, you can have CMC and MTPs involved. Uh, but in uh, PSA, you can have other joints, but more importantly, you should look for obviously dactylitis and enthesitis that would help you think uh, psoriatic arthritis. The erosions are uh, in OA are central erosions, the gull wing erosions, uh, where there's a central erosion and an outer lip of reactive bone. Um, as opposed to uh, PSA, where they're mousier or marginal erosions um, that um, like what we see here. But this patient had both central erosions and a scooped out, um, well, actually, her scooped out erosion was medial, not necessarily on the lateral edge. So it looks like more of a central erosion of erosive OAs. Serology should be negative for OA and less than 15% being seropositive for PSA. The proof is, unfortunately, I think often based in a response or non-response to your best therapies. Erosive OA doesn't respond to anything. Um, PSA has synovitis and tends to respond to the med drugs I mentioned earlier. There are lots of effective th trials uh, and, and therapies for PSA, but not so much for erosive inflammatory OA. And the progression 
is very slow in both, almost not able to tell just from progression. I think this patient had more erosive inflammatory OA, and since I have no effective therapy, the plan in my best therapy in patients like that is not a biologic, not a DMARD, they don't work, not Plaquenil, waste of time. Um, methotrexate, did that a long time ago, didn't do that. Tried every biologic, actually, none of them work. My best therapy for erosive inflammatory OA is a small dose of, of, of steroids, 2.5 milligrams of prednisone, plus hmm, somewhere between uh, 1,300, 1,950 of acetaminophen, the long-acting form, Tylenol arthritis, or extended release acetaminophen, uh, given as a once-a-day dose, two or three pills once a day, sometimes twice a day, with that little dose of prednisone is often very good. And then problematic joints, I manage by using Coban cohesive tape. Wait, I have some in the drawer here. Um, for those of you who are listening at home, sorry, you need to look at the video, but the same kind of tape that you use when you're getting your, um, your blood drawn and they wrap uh, the gauze with this clingy, stretchy tape. Two-inch cohesive or Coban tape wrapped around a PIP and DIP for 14 days is a great way of controlling uh, their pain and making them better. That's it for this QD clinic. Students tomorrow's. Hi, this is QD video brought to you by RoomNow.Live. We're down to the last few days of discounted registration. Check it out at RoomNow.Live. Today's case from the clinic is entitled how many days of fever? And this goes to the diagnosis of an auto-inflammatory syndrome. I'm fortunate enough to see a lot of patients with Stills disease and auto-inflammatory disease, and a lot of patients who don't have those diagnoses. There are a lot of mistakes often made in diagnosing such patients, and many of you throw around a diagnosis of Stills disease like, like they're nickels, when in fact they really should be manhole covers but you really need to be very, very rigid about the criteria used to make these diagnoses. So this fellow came to me with a history of periodic fevers. Um, they weren't every day, they'd be bouts of a few days and they would kind of recur at uneven intervals. And, um, and he would get, he's treated with steroids and he does very, very well. His fevers would be 103 to 104, um, last three to five days. And the question is what kind of auto-inflammatory syndrome does he have? Well, we have a final diagnosis because we've done gene testing showing that he has um, an MEFV gene um, uh, rearrangement. He's heterozygous for that, uh, um, that gene that says that he has familial Mediterranean fever or FMF. So the very clear and easy way of looking at these febrile syndromes is how many days do you have the fever? And we're gonna talk in real fever here. We're not talking um, 199.9100.7. Tell them I'm in the shower. Um, and so how many days of such fever do you uh, need? Again, it needs to be at those high levels, usually greater than 102. Um, and if it's three to five days, and usually closer to three days of fever, then you want to consider the diagnosis of FMF, um, also Muckle-Wells. The diagnosis of FMF is important because it doesn't have to be in someone who has a Mediterranean heritage. You should not um, exclude the diagnosis on the basis of ancestry because we often don't know our ancestry. This, 
this fellow actually his family uh, comes from uh, Korea and he was surprised that he has a Mediterranean disorder but clearly he does because he has the following symptoms he has recurrent bouts of fever lasting usually three last one was five days there's not a typical periodicity these are not quotidian daily fevers he's heterozygous for the MEFE gene mutation um, that's uh, sometimes associated he doesn't have one of the five top uh, genes that are often tested for He's seronegative for everything. His last CRP was 267 milligrams per liter. His white count 26,000. His ferritin 500. He's had evanescent rashes. He's young. He's 20, uh, 30 years old. He has had a prodromal sore throat, lymphadenopathy, pericarditis, and itchy urticarial rash. Again, all these are short, very short-lived. Again, three to five days, you think FMF. Two weeks of fever, you think of what? Traps. The, the TNF uh, um, receptor 1 associated disorder responds well to uh, etanercept. And if you have daily fevers, daily quotidian, quotidian means they occur at the same time every day, almost like a circadian syndrome occurring at the exact same hour or minute every day. Still's disease tends to be late at night, sometimes late afternoon, never at 7 a.m. Um, and it's a quotidian disease. So if you have a daily high fever, spikes up to 100, 300, 400, 5, you would consider a diagnosis of systemic JIA in the adult or in the kid. Uh, and if it's an adult, you might also consider the diagnosis of Schnitzler syndrome, and you should do an SPEP and look for um, a, mon a monoclonal or polyclonal gammopathy that would be sort of the marker for that disease. So that's how you know how many days of fever can lead to a diagnosis. Tune in for more QD videos. Enjoy. This is QD Video, brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where the goal is to inspire, inform, educate, and interact. More on that later. Our case from the clinic is the normal said rate PMR patient. So I have this gentleman, he's 57, he comes to see me, He's been around the block with a few orthopedists. He's had neck injections. He's had shoulder injections. He feels horrible. Occasionally, someone's given him a Medrol dose pack, and he feels wonderful. And when I see him, he's got, you know, pain up in here from his neck down to his shoulders. You know, he's sore. He can hardly move. He can hardly raise his arms. Uh, his hips and thighs and low back are, are killing him. He has one to two hours of morning stiffness. He uh, does not have any fever. He does not have any jaw claudication, anemia, LFTs, or weight loss. It's this stiffness and soreness, morning stiffness uh, and soreness that is overtaken him and changed him dramatically since uh, about three months ago. So, of course, I see him and say, you're a little young for PMR. Most of my PMRs are, you know, about the average age of PMR, which is about 67 to 70 years of age. I don't diagnose many at, you know, at 90. I don't diagnose many at 50. Um, but it's still possible. The criteria says over the age of 50. So when you look at his labs, no anemia, no white count. Set rate is 1. Ooh. Uh, but his CRP is marginally elevated at 9 milligrams per liter. And his platelet count is an unexplainable 490,000. Of course, he goes on 10 milligrams of prednisone, is now a champion, 
uh, and there's no other other evaluations that have been done on him have been negative, um, and this has been curative. So it's really to go over the case that's not the usual, meaning you'd like them to have a really sky-high set rate and CRP, but that's not always the case. It turns out actually somewhere around 7 to 22% of patients with PMR will have a normal set rate. If you look at other acute phase reactants, they'll occasionally be elevated, but they don't need to be. These kind of patients tend to be younger, tend not to have the other inflammatory features I just mentioned, that being anemia, fever, high white count, LFTs, uh, weight loss. Those are not usually common. They tend to have a delay in diagnosis. They tend to be a little less female than do the very high set rate PMR patients. And they tend to respond maybe a little better and get away with a little bit less steroids in the long run. So it happens. It happened to me. It could happen to you. Look out for such cases. Let me give you a reminder about the faculty we have for Room Now Live. It's incredible. It's on the website. Um, it starts on Friday, the 22nd of March with Mike Holler's John O'Shea, Mike Holler's on preclinical RA, John O'Shea talking about jack inhibitors. He invented them or he discovered them. Mike Weinblatt giving you a history of methotrexate unlike anything you've ever heard. Eric Madison on the history of steroids. Uh, Ted Pincus, Fred Wolf, uh, a safety session with Lisa Samaritano. You know, in a previous uh, recording I said Lisa Samartino. Don't know where I got that from. No Lisa well. Maybe it has to do with my growing up idolizing Bruno Sammartino, another story. Len Calabri is talking about checkpoint inhibitors. I'll be talking about infections and how to manage them and prevent them. The next day, we're going to have a talk on the price of drugs uh, from Maddie Feldman, Ron Van Bolenhofen, uh, Georg Schett, and Philip Conigan, the masters of the EU, doing uh, TED-like talks. A uh, session on psoriatic arthritis that features Artie Kavanaugh Philip Conigan and Craig Leonardi, they'll blow your socks off. A session on lupus with Ken Kalunian, Richie Fury, and Dorian Urkan talking about the antiphospholipid and catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. We have an orthopedic session, a vasculitis session, session and a spondylitis session we're gonna end with. Carol Langford, Philip Sio, Paul Monarch from uh, the Brigham, and then spondylitis, John Ravel, Eric Ruderman, and Elaine Husney. It's a killer lineup. I don't, you, you, room now about live, check it out.